Okay, what we're looking at here is uh, CA Lab. So today is September 22nd, 2005. This is Philosophy 115 at San Jose State. So we're doing a demo here, and we're going to load the axons program. And uh, this is an example of a one-dimensional reversible cellular automaton. So I'll just press the space bar and run it here. So notice we started with a single seed. Uh, there's also some stuff going on at the borders. What I did in this rule to sort of pump it up, there's some rhythmic uh, stuff coming in from the borders. So every, uh, every like 20 steps or something, it just zaps the borders. So this is sending some stuff into this world. Now, this is an example of a reversible cellular automaton. Last time I talked about a reversible cellular automaton having the quality that nu c is some function of uh, c and the neighbors minus old c. And uh, if you have an equation like that, the idea is if I bring new c over to the right hand and old c over to the left hand, I get old c equals some function of c in the neighborhood minus uh, new c. So they have a symmetric role here. Now, it turns out this program has a, a hotkey in it, alternate S. And if I press that, what that does, it, uh, let's see. Yeah. What that does, it reverses the role of old and new. So it was running here. I hit Alt-S, and I pressed it. Notice what was going on here. This is where I hit alternate S. Notice it starts going backwards here. Okay. So in other words, we're getting this reversed. Uh, again, I can hit alternate S. And that big square comes back. See, now I can hit alternate S again. I go back to that square. Now, if I don't hit alternate S, I just have more and more crap coming in. Now, um, this is a reversible cellular automaton again. Nothing's being dissipated. The idea is that the uh, essentially, if I'm given any two rows here, I can predict the entire future and the entire past of this little universe. Okay. Uh, let me show you a two-dimensional version of this. That's a little bit easier to understand. And uh, this one's called timeton.jc. So we're loading this into cell lab. And uh, so this one was invented by these two guys called Margolis and Toffoli at MIT. And they were uh, sort of the people that I made this very memorable trip in 19, uh, oh gee, I guess it was about 1984. And I'd heard about cellular automata from an article that Stephen Wolfram wrote in Scientific American. And uh, I was a freelance writer then. I wasn't working as a professor. And so I wanted to do an article for a science magazine. And so I went up and I interviewed Wolfram at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And then I went up to Boston and met these guys, Margolis and Toffoli. And uh, they had this rule that they called time tunnel. And this is another reversible CA rule. 
And uh, so what's happening here, we seeded it with that thing in the corner. That, by the way, was the Autodesk logo. Uh, this is some software I wrote with a guy at Autodesk. When Margulis and Toffoli wrote it, they didn't use the Autodesk logo as the start pattern. They just had a red square. Okay. But uh, So we let this thing run. And what's happening, it's interesting. This We can just let it run sort of freely for a minute. Uh, it's getting, right away, it gets sort of trashed inside this square. And then it's get trashed out in the outer world here. And at this point, if we let it run, it'll just continue just seething here, being sort of ugly, seething crap. Now, this is a rule that has the form, the new C is some function of any cell in its neighborhood minus the old C. Now, what I'm going to do here, I'm going to uh, press the alternate S key, and that exchanges the new C and old C buffers. And now it's coming back. Okay, see it's reversing, it goes back to where it started, okay? So in other words, this brings home a couple of things. One thing it brings home is that you can have this completely seething dog barf type pattern like we see here after this thing runs for a, few, you know, a couple of thousand generations. And you might say, that uh, there's no real underlying order here. But it's deterministic. And if we have a deterministic cellular automaton, then uh, we're able to, to press the uh, Alt-S key in this particular software. So there's no wrapping, no wrapping, They're wrapping around. They wrap from the top to the bottom and the left to the right. And uh, because of the nature of the rule, by the way, you're allowed to scroll if you want to. We can scroll this thing uh, into the center of the screen. What's your question? It seems like there's almost a ring going on. Oh. Uh, you mean like a, a ring theory type ring? Well, yeah, I mean, there's only finitely many values that it has. What it's got, uh, to tell you the truth, I can't remember the exact rule. And now it goes back into negative time, but that's going to look just like positive time. Okay, and then we can reverse it again. We can sort of ping pong back and forth across the Big Bang. Okay. And it's just kind of neat to see it this complete dog barf converging. Now, there's another interesting thing you can do. We can let it go like this, and then I can screw up one pixel and then tell it to run backwards. Let's try doing that. Uh, so now, I believe, I haven't used this software in a while, but I think there's a way to edit. Uh, let's see. There's some way to edit the screen. Uh, if I can remember how to do that. Uh, copy screen, bit plane shortcuts. Mm. You know, maybe Walker didn't put the screen editor into this version. Let's see, world. Uh, huh? 
No, the dashboard just shows you uh, how many generations it's done. Uh, well, okay, I can't remember how to edit the screen. <laughs> if I, there were a way to edit and screw up one bit, uh, it would uh, it would screw up the reversibility. But anyway, so that's uh, that's kind of neat. So if it runs forever, huh? I mean, you can let it run as long as you want to, and you can always you can always reverse. It'll just be dog barf forever. You might say, well, might it spontaneously come back to the original pattern? Well, it sort of wants to explore every possible location and phase space, or not everyone, but a lot of them, before it gets back. And uh, this is a, I believe it's, I think there's two bits per pixel. So I think we're looking at the 64, uh, let's see, there's, it's 320 by 200. So is that 64,000 or 640,000? Let's see. 320 by 200. Yeah, 64,000. Yeah, there's 64K pixels here. And uh, each of them can be in any four positions. So you've got four to the 64K possible states of the world. So it doesn't have to come back to itself very soon. And it probably won't. Uh, you can put other patterns in there too. There's nothing special about the square. I can load. Uh, when we wrote this software, we thought it would be funny to have one of the start patterns be Tim Leary. <laughs> uh, so here's Dr. Tim, okay? And. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bill Gates. Yeah, that was annoying to me. I mean, you work on a book for a long time, and, and some guy reads it for about a half an hour. And I think it's like the fact that, I mean, I actually met Tim Leary a couple of times. He's, you know, he's a nice guy, a good guy. And uh, but, uh, that doesn't mean that, that I'm an idiot, you know. <laughs> but anyway, what I, I've been working on my web page really hard to make, uh, you know, try to build it up. But yeah, it is annoying to have that review on Amazon. So now this is Tim being run forward, and now we can run Tim uh, backwards in time. So that was the, the Tim Leary pattern loaded into the time tunnel rule. And we'll see. Uh, Tim getting his head back together here. I think. Is it going to happen? Did I press all this? I thought I did. Well, what happens with this particular rule is uh, this happens to be a rule that preserves edges. Okay. So, in other words, the edges are always going to be there. What is the rule? Um, well, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, I know where to look it up, okay? But uh, I think uh, we could look it up online if we wanted to. Uh, 
Yeah, we can do that in a second. Okay, so that's Tim running forward. Now let's do all this. And now, yeah, he's going to come back. It's kind of a messy image to begin with, so you hardly notice when he's got it together, even. Okay, there. Yeah, that's as good as he's going to get. Okay, um, if, if you're really curious, we could go online for a second, uh, I think. Let's see. in here. Uh, okay, now if we go to my home page, uh, and I think on the software, if we go to the page for, uh, well, we can do it this way. So we can do it this way. So we can go to the sacred home page of the, the Lifebox book. This I've been working on all week. I made a nice navigation bar here. The buttons are supposed to change color when you roll over them, but for some reason they don't. And we can go to software downloads. Then if we go to the Cell Lab link, uh, we can find the, the Cell Lab manual. Whoops, what happened there? Uh, popped out of that. Okay, so we can go to the, the Cell Lab link. And I think uh, the manual seems to me used to be online here. Let's see if it's still there. Yeah, there it is. So uh, we can scroll down here to the JC and the JC rules. And the rule we were just looking at was called Time Tunnel. And I can click on Time Tunnel. And uh, this is a reversible rule. And uh, so it says it has the quality that new self is some uh, function of your present neighborhood uh, XORed with the past self. So that's a little more sophisticated than just doing minus. You can do uh, the Boolean XOR operation. That's what you have to use if it's more than one bit. And uh, yeah. And uh, and the rule, uh, OK, the rule is this. The cell looks at itself and its neighbors, and it sets. It has a number of computes called interest. If all of the five bits are the, are the same, and it sets interest to one if any of them are different. So basically, a cell looks at its five neighbors, and essentially, each state can either just be zero or one. Okay, and. Um, if all five are the same, uh, it computes this value to be 0. And if any of them is different from the others, it computes that value to be 1. Now, we're displaying it as uh, four colors. This is a, so we're actually using four colors. And that's because we're actually displaying um, the, I think we're displaying the current value and the previous value for each cell. So it's you know, quite a simple rule. Okay, now you could, I'll leave that for something you can brood over about why it preserves 
the straight lines or a square. I'll let you figure that out or think about it. So uh, those are the two rules I wanted to show you today. And uh, I think with that, we can turn the, oh, one other thing I might as well show you. On the website, I got the, uh, I got a sample of the book online now. I got permission from our publisher to put chapters one, two, and four online. So there, most of them is there. There's a misprint, I realized, on the very first page of the book. Uh, it's where this guy sees a, a number, and this is going to be a lucky number. And then in the story, he, he reads it backwards, and it's his phone number. And originally, it ended 145. I mean, 514, because I wanted it to be like a, a California number with the area code 415. And then my editor was worried uh, if we published a number that was a real phone number, and some guy starts getting hundreds of phone calls, then he's going to be unhappy. And so then I, I looked online to find an area code that isn't an area code. It turns out almost every three-digit number is an area code, but 456 actually isn't. So anyway, we changed that. But then, uh, yeah, we didn't change that. Because then f this number is supposed to be less than this number. <laughs> and, uh, but thanks to the magic of PDF, I was able to put a little post-it note here, which is cute. Isn't that nice? <laughs> so you can see what I've been doing for the last last week or two. Anyway, uh, so today let's, let's talk a little more about quantum mechanics. And there's one picture in here in particular that I want to get to. Um, but um, I'll just draw that picture on the board for you. So let's, uh, let me turn the projector off now. It makes such an annoying noise. Okay. Um, yeah. So last time we talked about this idea that there's this problem if we want if we want to go for universal automatism and we want everything to be a computation. There's this problem uh, seemingly posed by quantum mechanics, which uh, seems to imply that things are unpredictable. And uh, in, I started to talk about this a little last time. Let's just go over this again briefly, because this is kind of a notion that we can use for, for something else. I want to also today say a little about there's this new thing called quantum computation that is uh, science fiction writers are excited about it. And uh, physicists, some of them have high hopes for for things coming out of it. Uh, it's really it's such a new field, it's hard to be sure exactly what it's going to lead to. But um, what, what, the idea that we start with is this idea of having uh, what we call a beam splitter. And uh, a beam splitter, it's like, a, it's like a piece of glass that's uh, silvered a little bit. So like, you know, a two-way mirror. It looks like a mirror, but some light comes through it. And we send in a photon, and then we, we say, does the photon uh, pass through? And if it passes through, we'll call that a 1. And if it gets reflected, we'll call that a 0. And uh, as I was saying last time, it's a little bit like this macro experiment I talked about, where we keep dropping a ball 
onto like some uh, divider in a bin, and the ball might either land on the left or land on the right, and we'd say a zero or one. And with balls, uh, it doesn't bother us. We can do this a lot of times. And we'll say, well, half, about half the balls end up in the zero bin, about half end up in the one bin. And we say that doesn't mean that the universe isn't deterministic. That just means we always had the ball in slightly different positions. The ball itself is a little bit different every time you drop it. You know, things are scraping off and getting stuck to it. So uh, you can't ever really repeat the same exact experiment. But each individual one of them, in principle, could be deterministic. Now, the present view of quantum mechanics is if you take something like a photon, the idea is a photon, at least the way physics is currently viewed, is uh, it's totally indivisible. Uh, it's primitive. It's as simple an object as can exist. Okay, like there's nothing simpler than a photon. And uh, now, last time, Lauren, I think, asked, uh, we said, do, well, is that really true? Couldn't it be that the photon itself is divisible? And it could be, in some sense, that there's another layer. This is uh, a sort of dynamic that we have had in the history of science for a long time, where we reach a layer and we say, that's it. As I mentioned last time, the Greek word for atom, that means no cut. You can't cut it in half. But then, you know, we found out, well, atoms are made of stuff. Then they said, well, actually, protons and neutrons are made of quarks. In a way, they're divisible. But uh, for the last, oh, I don't know, at least 20 years, things have kind of settled down. But you've got photons, you've got electrons, you've got quarks and some other kinds of particles, muons. And these are uh, regarded, they call this the standard theory, and these are regarded as being indivisible. Now there is, uh, there are people working on other theories, there's string theory that you hear about sometimes, that maybe we could find some sort of lower level thing. And then there's people like Wolfram has this idea that this, there's a lot of stuff down below this, uh, and that photons are more like waves on this surface of some sort of underlying tinker toy type computation. So maybe there's lots of lower level structure. But be that as it may, let me back up a little bit to why this the beam splitter experiment presents a problem for us. If we grant, or if we say, well, maybe the photon is indivisible and they're all identical and they're as simple as they could possibly be, then we have a problem in that, why does the photon, uh, why does it either always go to the right or go to the left? How can it sort of do this flipping a coin thing and not knowing which way to go? Now, what makes the situation, you still might be inclined to say, well, maybe somehow the photons are a little bit different or maybe you're aiming them a little bit different. But there's this odd thing you can do here. Uh, it turns out you can take you can, if you take two beam splitters, so we put a beam splitter here, and we let uh, half the beam goes through, half of it bounces. Then suppose you put uh, a couple of mirrors there. So uh, the photon comes in, it hits the beam splitter. Now, 
half the time it bounces up, half the time it goes through the beam splitter and goes down. Suppose you put a mirror there to catch each case. And say these are good, solid, 100% mirrors. Okay. And then uh, and suppose we put another beam splitter here. Okay. And what will happen then, and let's put a... Uh, A detector here, a detector here. And again, let's maybe call this detector zero, call this one. And uh, maybe let's call this one. Okay. And uh, what you can do, you can actually imagine tuning the positions of these mirrors so that the two possible paths. In a way, you could say, well, if the photon, instead of being a particle, instead it was a wave, we could think of there being basically a wave is coming in here, and half the wave's coming up here, and half's going down here. And uh, then we can tune it. Let me make sure I have this picture right. Let me look it up uh, in the book here. So yeah, yeah, this picture's on page 122. Okay, so um, think of this as, let me just label it the same. So we, we go through here. Uh, if you pass through, we think of this as a 1 and this is a 0. Uh, what'll happen, uh, there'll be, in some sense, four beams coming out of the second beam split. So here the one beam split into two. Now each of these splits into two. So they can either go through here or go up here. Now what you can do, you can tune this so that these two beams reinforce each other and these two beams cancel each other out. So what you can end up doing is get it so you have 100% coming out here and 0% coming out here. So this is something you can do when you have wave systems. It's sort of like getting interference fringes to either overlap with each other we can have the trough matching the trough or the trough matching the crest. And by very slightly adjusting the positions of these mirrors, you can get it tuned like this. So uh, then what happens, so this is where the quantum mechanics gets so mysterious. We can send in one photon at a time into this system. Now, a system like this is called an interferometer. And uh, the reason it's called that is that it's about two waves interfering with each other, so interferometer. So uh, the photon comes in here at the top, and then 100% of the time it comes out here. So that's sort of strange, because you say, if there's really only one photon and it's indivisible, then it doesn't seem like it, you can say you can think of it as a wave, but how can the wave split in two if the photon's indivisible? But it seems as if it does. Somehow the photon takes both paths, interferes with itself, and comes out there. Now, um, this is a confusing view of reality. It it's a kind of suggests that the photon, uh, so if you leave a particle alone, if you don't observe it, the particle can sort of enter what's called a superposed state of being, in some sense, in two places at the same time. So you aren't actually looking at the photon while it's in the system. You're only looking at it 
when you get to the end and you have these detectors out here. So one of the th moves that they take in one view of quantum mechanics called the Copenhagen interpretation is to say that when you, leave, when you don't watch a particle, it evolves into a superposed state, which is a mixture of different possible states. And then, uh, so this is if you leave it alone. And then if you observe it, you have a superposed, sometimes people call these mixed states, but um, physicists like to use the word mix, mixed state to mean something else. So I'm not going to use that word. I used to use the word mixed state, but uh, some people talked me out of it. So you're supposed to call it superposed state. When you observe it, it uh, does this thing called collapse, and you get a, uh, a single uh, clear state. So, uh, okay. Wait, how do you know that it took two, two paths? How do I know it took the both paths? Uh, well, if you were to go and measure it here, if I were to go and put my detectors back here, it wouldn't do the both paths. Because I'd say either it would be back to up here. Either it would be here or be here 50% of the time. So what makes me think that it took both paths? Well, the fact that once I get these things tuned, I can send in a million photons one after another, just trickle them in one after another. Every single one of them ends up coming out here. It comes out bouncing out this way. Now, how can it do this? The thing is, you could say, well, look, I know 50% of the time it's going to pass through this detector. 50% of, of this wave is 50% going to pass through this detector. So there's actually four waves coming out, each with a 25% probability. But what I've done is I've tuned this sucker so that these guys are negatively overlapping with each other. They're matching uh, trough to crest. And these guys up here are positively interfering with each other. So what will happen is I will always, every time I send one in here, I'll get the tick at the upper counter here. You say, well, how can it always do that? Well, the only way to explain that, at least in the Copenhagen interpretation, the only way to explain that is to say it actually acted like a wave this time around. It's, there's this famous wave-particle duality. It acted like a wave, and half the wave went up here, half of it went down here. They interfered with each other. It, it ended up splitting into four waves. These two parts of the waves canceled each other out. These two parts of the wave reinforced each other, and so that's why it's ticking up there. Yeah, it acts like a wave until you observe it. So it's uh, it's sort of an unpleasant state of affairs on quantum mechanics. So uh, so people have looked for ways out of it, and uh, the two the two ways that are of the kind of the most interest. One way out is to say the so-called many universes uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics. And what this says, um, the idea is that instead of having just one sheet of reality, we have lots and lots of sheets of reality. 
And when a photon is faced with a decision like this, like hitting a beam splitter, reality actually uh, splits in two, or maybe even before this happened, there were two sheets of reality. And one sheet of reality, the photon goes here, and one it goes here. So that's, uh, in terms of yourself, you might say, suppose I'm sitting there watching a Geiger counter, seeing if it's going to tick you know, next to some piece of radioactive stuff. That's controlled by quantum mechanics. So apparently, there's going to be two universes, one in which I see it tick, and one in which I don't see it tick. There's a, but the thing is, that happens over and over. It happens all the time. So we end up with uh, a whole lot of parallel universes. There's a good book about this by a guy called David Deutsch, uh, and it's called The Fabric of Reality. Well, parts of the book are good. Uh, it's kind of an odd collection of topics that he talks about in the book. Uh, some of them are, when he talks about physics, it's particularly interesting. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Roger Penrose has written about this. And the first guy that started talking about it was a, a physicist called John Wheeler. And he had a student uh, called Everett who wrote a very famous paper about the many universes interpretation. Um, now, if you have the many universes interpretation, then you sort of have determinism because it's not like the, if the what do we call this whole collection of things? Well, sometimes they call it the multiverse. Okay. So you can still have determinism then. If we only have one universe and half the time the photon goes to zero and half the time it goes to one, it seems like you're losing determinism. Okay. But if you have the multiverse, well, we could say there's one in which it goes to one, one it goes to the other. So every possible thing happens. So there's no, uh, it's still deterministic. Now, one of the big psychological problems with the multiverse is, well, if I'm really in you know, thousands, millions, quadrillions of universes, uh, why does this one feel like the only one I'm in? And then you could say, well, all the other yous think the same thing. Okay? You all think that in every universe. And then there's sort of a sense, though, that it's sort of wasteful. I mean, if we think about making the, the universe, it just seems like sort of inefficient to have quadrillion versions. But you might say, so what? I mean, it's hard enough to make a universe. Once you get it down, just make a whole lot of them. Well, it's like a branching tree. But what were you about to say, Ephraim? Yeah, well, they say that nature uh, tends to, to, uh, to favor simplicity. Like uh, simplicity, right? So right. You think that that wouldn't be very simple? Well, 
in a way it's simple, in a way it's not. It doesn't seem simple to have so many universes kicking around. You could say it's simple because then we don't have to say why the world is this way. But it's, it's not, I guess, to me the thing that I don't like about it, I guess, is it, I like to feel like there's some sort of reason behind our universe, some sort of structure. Like I think of the universe as a work of art and like there's some sort of theme to it. There's some, it's got some coherence. And you could say, well, there's just a whole lot of random coin flips and it happened to come out like this one and this is why we're here. And if the coin flips hadn't gone the right way, well, we wouldn't be here to notice. So it's just not, I don't know. It's not, a, to me, it's not a terribly satisfying way of looking at things. But um, it's kind of useful, though, if you look at your own psychology. Uh, I have this friend called Nick Herbert. He lives in Boulder Creek. He's a physicist. He originally came here to, uh, he worked for Memorex uh, designing like hard drive hardware, things like that. And he says, well, you might think about what's going on in your mind as being a little bit like these quantum mechanical systems. Uh, always an example I always think of. Suppose you go into a restaurant and you haven't seen the menu yet. You know you're hungry, but you don't know what you're hungry for. And then when you look at the menu, it's like the menu performs this measurement on you. The idea is either you can have grilled salmon, or you can have steak, or you can have chicken, and that's all we've got tonight. And then suddenly, you're forced into these, these bins of possible decisions, and then you say, okay, look, I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm going to have chicken. And then suddenly you've gone from being this very kind of many universes hunger where you can be eating anything. You could be eating pho, you could be eating sushi, you could be eating a burrito. And suddenly you're, you're going to be eating a piece of broiled chicken with coleslaw. That's, you, you sort of collapsed. So there's this thing that happens in your mind when you're not kind of focused, when you're thinking in a kind of loose way. Sometimes you don't have a particular opinion about something. And then we have this experience of going from this sort of many universes thought mode or this superposed state mode where you're smeared out over a lot of possibilities to be, uh, you conduct some sort of measurement on yourself. Somebody asks you a question and you collapse and you're in a single clear state. Yeah? Well, no, I think you, you would, the gain of having a multiple universe, you wouldn't really have to explain. I mean, you'd say, well, there's no reason. It just did both possible things. And we, so we've got both universes. But, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's not the most satisfying kind of explanation. You'd like to hear, uh, it's not a philosophically satisfying explanation because Usually, we think of an explanation being sort of having some sort of causation or purpose involved. 
And that's kind of what I was getting at, where you don't feel like there's a, a real reason behind the universe. Well, there's a, and uh, I'm, I'm not truly doing justice to these ideas. They're, they're pretty complicated. And uh, so you, if you want to write about them, you would want to read up on them a little bit more. But uh, what I want to do right now, I want to move on to another interpretation of quantum mechanics. It isn't so well known. It's by a physicist called uh, John Kramer, and he calls it the transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now, this one, too, is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. We're sort of in a, a tough spot with quantum mechanics. There's not going to be any easy way to understand it, as far as we can tell. So you have to have some weird belief. Either you have this weird thing about things getting fuzzy when you don't look at them and then collapsing. You know, It's almost like you imagine you, you leave your house and the furniture you know, starts running around the room and turning into clouds and things. And then the furniture hears your, your footsteps on the stairs and it all runs and gets back into place. Kind of like the, the cat in the hat. You remember that book? It's like the kids are home on a rainy day and the cat in the hat shows up and they, they totally mess the house up. They've got thing one and thing two. They're flying kites in the house. Then they see their mother out the window. That's the, the, ob the observers returning. So then they have to put everything back into order. So that's, uh, that's the sort of Copenhagen interpretation. And then the multi-universe, uh, that's, you know, we've got all these different universes where everything is happening. Now, what's Kramer's angle? His idea is to claim that the, uh, the future and the past coexist. Okay, so that's kind of, a lot of physicists would be comfortable with that idea. Okay, uh, so the idea is we've sort of got space-time going on here. And uh, we've got, maybe there's two different particles. Uh, so maybe if two particles are interacting, and maybe they go off in this direction and this direction. So here's particle A and particle B. So we can draw a little space-time diagram here. And uh, I have a picture of this on page 126. So they're flying apart. Now, um, there's this other thing I haven't really mentioned yet that relates to quantum mechanics. There's this thing called entanglement. And uh, entanglement says that if two particles have closely interacted, they can become coupled in such a way that later, if I do a measurement on particle A and I do the measurement on B, I'll, I'll get the same number, even though they're too far apart from each other to communicate. And uh, so if you ask A some question about himself, he might say something like 3.14. And you ask B the same question, and B says 3.14. But uh, according to quantum mechanics, it's not that these values were already in them. They were, in other words, down here, the value of A wasn't determined. It wasn't determined. It wasn't determined until you actually measured it and sort of collapsed the wave function. But the curious thing that happens, if you collapse the wave function of particle A, 
its entangled partner has to collapse at the same time. And this is sort of, uh, Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. The idea is it's like these things are too far away to send signals to each other, but they collapse. Now, what Kramer says, he says, well, let's, let's look at it this way. Perhaps it's possible for signals, ordinarily we think of time, in the picture I've drawn here, time's going up the page. He says, suppose that we have time signals that can actually go backwards in time and then bounce forward. So the idea is when I measured A, what it did, it sent a signal backwards to when A and B were still married, okay? Then A passed the information to B at that time, then B carries that information forward into the future. So that's, uh, he says that there's this reverse causation in time. Now, as far, again, I don't understand this as well as I would like to. It seems that John Kramer's written a kind of a long paper about it. I have a link to it. Um, and his idea is that we can take the patterns of space-time, if we view space-time as a reversible computation, okay, then it's going to be consistent with quantum mechanics to say that it's deterministic as long as the computation is reversible. In other words, this sort of hidden, when we say how did the photon know, what, what caused it to go to point zero, well, the fact that it ended up in zero, that it got observed here, that somehow sends a signal back in time that makes the photon actually come this way, which sounds a little like circular reasoning, but uh, it's, our, our language isn't really set up very well for talking about reverse causation in time. Now, this is the model. I actually like this model because this allows me to think of the universe as being more like a cellular automaton. Because I have this, this special image that may be a bunch of bull, but it's it comes back to that, that reversible cellular automaton I was showing you at the beginning. And that rule is called the axons rule. And so we have these uh, these patterns moving around. Okay, so here's We've got a one-dimensional space, so this is this is going to be now, okay? And we've got this time axis going up like this, okay? And uh, if you think of this as being a reversible uh, deterministic um, computation, the idea is if I'm given enough information about the present instant, maybe I need now and maybe the one time step before it, like the, the past C as well as the C. Given the information about this strip, the whole rest of the thing is determined. Okay, so everything is determined from the now moment. And this seems to be consistent with a quantum mechanical view as long as we allow reverse causation. Now, uh, Yeah, yeah. So if you could know exactly what's going on now, you can predict the whole past, the whole future, just like in classical. Uh, 
yeah, the whole thing. Now, here there remains the question of uh, where did the structure come from? Because uh, like how do we end up with, with this nice tapestry? So we've got this, this beautiful tapestry filling space and time. And if you take any little strip of it, you can extrapolate the whole rest of it. But where did the tapestry itself come from? Because if we'd like to be fully computational, we'd like to have a computational reason for that. So that's where I say, this is where I get creative. I say, let's, uh, let's put in a second, second axis of time. And let's call this direction, uh, let's call it para-time. Okay, so para is sort of almost time. Or uh, like parapsychology is almost psychology. Or if, if somebody's schizophrenic and you can't understand what they're saying, you say they're speaking para-language. It's almost language, but not quite really language. Or they're using para-logic. So para is often used in sort of a denigrating sense. So I'm using it with a little bit of irony calling it paratime here. So we've got paratime. So what I'm thinking is, we'll start, and this is in some ways, Wolfram has this kind of theory about where the universe comes from that is maybe vaguely related to this idea. So the idea is, we start with a simple seed. Okay, we start with a seed like, you know, 42. Isn't that the, the seed in the, the Hitchhiker's Guide? Okay, we start with some Nice, simple seed. And then we run, uh, and this rule, this sort of sideways rule, we run this across paratime, and that generates this, uh, this now moment. And then you say, okay, now we take the now moment, and we can extrapolate that into all of space-time. And so then we sort of have two computations. This computation we can think of as being physics, and this computation we can think of as being metaphysics. And that's the, the picture that's in the book on page, um, let's see. That's on page 133, figure 49. Uh, now we would actually have, for each of these sheets, we could actually have a different space-time corresponding to this. So I would have sort of a limited multiverse view. The idea is you might have a series of universes, a series of space-times. But what I'm thinking, this is sort of congenial. Since I write a lot of novels, what I notice is novels, you'll do drafts. So it'll be the first draft, and the second draft, and the third draft. And as each draft is written, you get a better overall pattern. Because no a novel is sort of a piece of space-time, because you're describing a world over a period of time. So you sort of have this space-time picture of this little universe. And in some sense, it's, you could imagine a novel in which, you know, really, if it's really tightly constructed, any, if you take any chapter, the sort of what's to come and what preceded it, sometimes they all sort of follow out of that one chapter because everything's being foreshadowed and everything is in there for a reason. So you can sort of see this, this structure. But it might happen that, so maybe God is doing a series of novels, okay? 
a sort of series of drafts of our universe. And this is the one we're in. Now, is this the final draft? That's a question that interests me. Is this the best one? Maybe. You know, it might be. Uh, or maybe there's another sheet of space-time that's better. Maybe the universe could be made better. It's sort of nice to imagine that we're the best universe. Maybe God does a certain number of drafts of the universe and then stops. Okay, that's done. I'm going to mail this in. I'm going to mail this in to the publisher. I'm going to start a new book now. I'm tired of this one. So, this is a... Well, I think they might be somewhat like each other, but again, maybe the sort of starting pattern isn't a very good one here. Like some of the runs, like suppose that the physics were always the same, like it's always the axons rule. So if you start the axons rule with different start patterns, some of them it'll sort of die out and nothing much will happen. So I think that would be the more typical thing. You'd have this sort of this burst of activity, and then it just sort of peters out and just becomes a gas or just becomes stripes. And then the idea is you're, you're evolving towards a start pattern that makes this nice, intricate, uh, lacy, macrame space-time structure. So I, I guess that would be. Though, it, you, yeah. So I don't really know. But, or it could be that maybe the start, the rule is also being evolved. That's, I mean, that could be done too. You could think of it that way. Uh, and the motive behind all this is, oh, we always had this dream of finding this magic formula. I mean, like that's why everybody always remembers that joke from the Hitchhiker's Guide, is that the answer is 42. Because we have this idea that there ought to be this really simple answer. And then, how could we use a simple answer and get the whole rich universe out of that? Well, if you give it enough computation, if you throw enough computation at it, maybe you could do that. And this would be one way of going about it. So first, munge the answer into some really huge, gonzo, big starting pattern, and then throw that pattern into a reversible uh, cellular automaton and let that generate a whole space-time out of that pattern. So that'd be one way to go about doing it. And I think um, this could be done in such a way that it would be consistent with quantum mechanics, too, which is always the sort of boogeyman that we have to look out for when we want to have a deterministic cosmos. Okay. Um, It would. It would be consistent with the idea of there being lots of universes. I'm sort of okay with there being lots of universes. I mean, that doesn't bother me so much. It's more the idea of there being every possible universe. Because then, what do you have? I mean, you think of a museum where we have, sometimes people say, well, the, the Venus Aphrodite is inside every block of marble. I mean, in a way, it's, it's latent in there. It could be, if you were Praxiteles, you could you know, chip it out of there. But uh, you wouldn't want to go to a museum where every possible 
variation of the what you could carve out of a block of marble. It, it wouldn't. It's just not satisfying. There's no sign of intelligence or creativity. Um, Jorge Luis Borges wrote about a library that had every possible book in it. And he had a funny way of pitching it, so it sounded like you really wanted to get to this library, because it would say it would have the true story of your life, you know, uh, like Odysseus's actual description of his journey. It would have uh, the, the correct physics. You think, well, gee, I'd like to go there. And then he says, but it'll also have all the false versions of all these, and also you know, incalculably many volumes of sheer gibberish. Because we have every possible volume, you know, most of them are going to be gibberish. Is there a chance Your chance of finding something good is then very small. <laughs> and in fact, there's not much point in even going to that library because you want to take a book out of the library. I mean, you could write a program that would just randomly, you know, generate 100,000 words of text and say, okay, this is the first book I'll take out. Well, that's the point you raised before. It's uh, well, it seems where we have the problem with determinism. If if we have only that is, if I just if I take the square and I just shade in the whole square. Then I'll say, okay, look, every possible point is occupied by a possible universe. There's nothing to explain. But then if I say, that's the universe, that if I just put one dot in the square, then you say, well, why is the dot there? You know, why are its coordinates? So then you have a question, and it's hard to answer. And the sort of intermediate view that I was kind of getting at now is we don't have every possible universe. We don't just have one. Maybe we have this sort of cool fractal-like or structure of a few universes happen to exist. Okay. And that's... Uh, Well, we like universes that we happen to exist in. I mean, those are the ones. <laughs> like universes that have intelligent life in them. I mean, a universe where, you know, if the fine structure constant was such that matter couldn't form and all you ever had forever was, you know, a bunch of photons racing around. I mean, it might be fun for, for somebody, but not for us. The things you never know, I mean, I've always had this idea that, well, I read this science fiction book years ago by a, he's a British philosopher called Olaf Stapleton. And he also wrote a couple of science fiction books. One of them was called Star Maker. And he had this idea that stars had souls and were intelligent. And then he also suggested that the sunspots were like parasites that lived inside the stars. 
And I've always liked the idea of sunspots being living organisms, because they're, they're what they are. As, as I understand it, they're they're like whirlpools, and uh, they're, they're actually sort of sheets or tubes of uh, magnetic fields that are in a, a roughly toroidal shape, and where the tor the two spots where the torus crosses the surface of the sun, those are going to be seen as a couple of dots. So sunspots are always in pairs. And uh, so it's like we have this, this seething, raging torus of magnetohydrodynamic uh, fluids flowing around. And in some sense, maybe, I mean, maybe these things could be thought of as alive, because they can sort of reproduce. A donut can pinch in two and make uh, like a, an eight and then make split itself in two. And, they process information in certain kinds of ways. Actually, in my novel, Frack and the Elixir, I have a race of beings, and that's what you, actually what they are. They're these, these sunspot creatures that live in suns. They, they actually can go from sun to sun. I recently found out these things can actually be thrown free of the sun. When the sun has a big prominence, you can have one of these sort of donuts of energy can actually float out into space. And if we're near the center of the galaxy, where there's lots of suns near each other, it could then land on a different island. So they'd be sort of like Polynesians surfing their way from one sun to another. So the, the reason I brought that up, I said, well, if a universe where we didn't have matter might be boring. But again, how do you define life? How do we define? There's computation in every universe. And so maybe, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so chauvinist. Maybe. Yeah, any computation that maintains itself for some period of time is yeah. different than any other computation. Right. Right. Yeah, any sort of time persistent computation could be viewed as perhaps being intelligent in some sense of the word. Or alive in some sense. Yeah. So that's, uh, let's see. Maybe that's a, a place to knock off for now. Let's take our break, and then uh, we'll talk about your projects.